coming in and finding their seat and getting comfortable. A couple of uh, announcements just to remind everyone about. Uh, first of all, it's important to give us uh, contact information so we can get a hold of if you need to. Every now and then something comes up and, and I say, uh, well, I ask Pam Richards or somebody, how do I get a hold of so-and-so? Nobody knows. So uh, it's good to have that information so we can get in touch with you if we need to. Also, um, Daylight Savings Time begins Saturday night, the uh, 5th of November. And then we are beginning to collect things for uh, Samaritan's Purse. That is a ministry of uh, Franklin Graham. And uh, so we the deadline's November 13th, so boxes and information about that ministry are out in the fellowship hall. And then once again, we're still looking for about five or six people to sign up for the Grand Canyon trip. This is a once-in-a-lifetime kind of trip. And for many people, it's something they've had on their uh, bucket list for a while. But what makes this special is not only going to the canyon, but also uh, being able to learn about the geology, especially as it relates to um, creationism and the flood and the state of uh, things, and nobody gets more excited about a rock than Steve Austin, and you've heard him here when we've um, had him speak at a couple of the Chafer conferences, so uh, we still need, we still have room for people who might want to go on, on that trip. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. We do this in order to make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord. Scripture says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so in silent prayer, we simply admit or acknowledge our sin. Instantly, we're cleansed, restored to fellowship so we can walk by the Spirit. We'll have a, after a few moments, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are challenged in the scriptures through example and through specific instruction to think about you and to reflect upon you and to uh, think through your various attributes, especially when we look at the challenges facing us in the world around us, challenges both in our own nation, challenges in our families, challenges with our work life, finances, all kinds of things, to think about them in light of who you are and what you've provided for us that there's nothing that we face in life that you didn't know about in eternity past. There's nothing you didn't make provision for, and there's nothing that you haven't uh, provided for. The problem is that we need to relax and rest and trust in your provision and that we need to learn to walk with you, and we need to learn and know your word. And, Father, as we study through the life of David, one of the examples that we see here is, is the importance of truly knowing your word and applying it uh, consistently. And so, Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us as we go through this, this particular study. And now, Father, we also are reminded of many who are uh, in this congregation who have health problems, and you know who they are. You know who every person listed on our prayer list, and we pray that you would provide for them, sustain them, and give their um, caregivers, especially uh, great uh, uh, great patience and wisdom in taking care of them. Father, we pray for us tonight that we might be able to focus on your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're moving tonight out of 1 Samuel 17 into 1 Samuel chapter 18, and I've titled this lesson, The Lord is With. He's with David. Three times in this chapter, the statement is made that the Lord is with David. 
I think that's the theme. That's what is being demonstrated in the next two or three chapters is God's protection for David. And David understands that. David knows, first of all, that in uh, back in chapter 16, that he's been anointed to be the king of Israel. He knows that that's God's plan for his life. Now, we don't quite have those same assurances. We don't have special revelation telling us what is going to happen a year or two or three or four uh, down the road. But David knew that he was eventually going to be king, and that meant that that he had great confidence that, that when he goes into battle against Goliath, when he's dealing with the uh, opposition of Saul, when he's dealing with living among his enemies, the Philistines, that God is going to protect him because God's given him a promise, and God's going to fulfill that promise. And so he can relax because he knows what the future is going to be. We don't always know that. We know that, that God's going to protect us, but part of that protection may include taking us to heaven tomorrow. And so we have to understand that, that we don't have quite the same uh, situation or circumstances uh, that David had. Nevertheless, there are a lot of things that we can learn. We also know, as we talk about the Lord being with David, that the Lord is with us. Romans chapter 8, verse 13, the second part of the verse says, If God is for us, who can be against us? God plus one is a majority. So it doesn't matter what the... Uh, external circumstances may be in terms of uh, politics or economics or health or opposition from people within our um, within our circles. The the Lord is for us, and we need to be walking with the Lord. Now, as we come to this part of Daniel. I'm going to lay out the basic outline for the second half of of First uh, Samuel. We saw in First Samuel chapter 16 verses 1 through 13 that God sent Samuel to anoint David. And again, I'm showing you that it, in contrast to every outline you look at on Samuel or any other uh, book in the Old Testament, I try to always structure my outlines with God as the subject as much as I can because. This is, especially in historical narrative literature, these are hero stories all the way through. And God's the hero because God's the one who's working out his plan. So what we see here is God anoints David to be the next king of Israel in those first 13 verses. And then God promotes David. Uh, You're not promoted unless God promotes you. You can manipulate. You can uh, uh, try to uh, maneuver things. You can try to do all kinds of of things in order to make things work for you, but uh, you may even appear to be promoted in the eyes of the world, but unless God promotes you, you really haven't been uh, promoted, and God promotes David. We saw this, that that God sent Samuel to anoint David in the first half of the chapter, and in the second half of the chapter, we saw that Saul was being um, uh, uh, oppressed by uh, a demon, and that God was ultimately allowing this demon to come in through God's permissive will to oppress Saul, and Saul needed uh, relief. And so his advisors, his servants said, we know someone who can do this, and that was David. And so God is the one who brings David out of the uh, sheepfold and into the presence of the king, and that's the first time we see David promoted. And then we saw over the last three lessons how God gave victory to David. Uh, We see David as a real spiritual champion, and because he is a spiritual champion, he is able to be the military champion for Israel. And that's most of chapter 17, 1 Samuel 17, 1 through 54, which is where we stopped last time. And then... Uh, that should be First Samuel seventeen fifty five. Uh, God protects David from Saul in First Samuel seventeen fifty five to twenty forty two. So we see over the next four uh, chapters or three plus just a little bit, God is going to protect David from Saul. David can't protect himself. David can't manipulate the situation. He can't do anything. Saul is bent on killing him. But God, David knows that, that he can relax and trust God 
and God is going to protect him from these murderous assaults from Saul. And then God protects David in exile. He flees Saul and goes to live in the midst of his enemies, the Philistines. And that covers the rest of First Samuel down to chapter uh, 31. So let's begin to look at the uh, text. Uh, we have a lot of narrative in this section, so it's going to go a little more quickly than some other other passages, and we see something of a transition here as we move David from being out in the sheepfold to being at the heart of the kingdom in the presence of Saul and in the presence of the court. So what we see here is that God is protecting David from Saul, and this starts actually in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 17, verse 55, and goes through uh, 2042, and in this first section, uh, 55 through uh, chapter 18, verse 4, uh, I have five on the slide, that's a typo, it just goes through verse 4. The question, the key question is, whose son are you? Whose son are you? So in 1 Samuel 17, 55, this takes place uh, uh, as a flashback. That's what we have in 1 Samuel 17, 55. By this time, David has already killed Goliath. David has uh, cut his head off. David has taken his head to Jerusalem, and he has um, uh, mounted that probably on a spear as a warning uh, to the people in uh, the Jebusites in in, uh, Salem that their time was coming. Their days were numbered. And, of course, this eventually happens. David is the one who defeats the Jebusites and conquers the city uh, for, for uh, Israel. And after all of this has taken place, we sort of have this flashback that when Saul saw David going out to, against the Philistine to do battle, he said to Abner, his general, who's also his uncle, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I I, I do not know. So the king says, inquire whose son this young man is. And so the basic thing he's asking is, uh, who's this boy's daddy? And as soon as I read this this morning, I got a flash in my head about a cookbook. It's one of my favorite cookbooks that uh, is a Cajun cookbook. And see, what, what, what Saul is asking is, is what's his lineage, what's his background, Who's his, what's his family like? Because he's made promises that whoever kills Goliath is going to have uh, th- their family, in fact, their extended family is going to live tax-free, and that he's going to marry his uh, Saul's daughter. And so uh, immediately Saul is thinking, well, who are my in-laws going to be? And see, this is the idea was uh, of the title for this Cajun cookbook, um, that is, Who's Your Mama? Are You Catholic? And Can You Make a Roux? by Marcel Bienvenu. I just always thought that was a great title for a book. Who's Your Mama? Are You Catholic? And Can You Make a Roux? I guess for, for Jews it would be, uh, it, it would be, Are You, uh, Who's Your Daddy? Are You Jewish? And Can You Get Me a Bagel? So this is, uh, uh, what Saul's asking is, who is David? Who's his background? Who's the family that's going to come into uh, come into Israel? So, as then we're told in verse fifty-seven, bringing it in back from the end of the flashback. Then, as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, so this is immediately after he's killed Goliath. Then Abner took him, brought him before Saul. Uh, with uh, with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? In other words, what's your lineage? Who's your family? And David said, I'm the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now, there are some people, liberals, who don't trust the word of God, and they say, well, wait a minute. That We already have this situation back in 1 Samuel uh, 16, where David has come from the sheepfold. He's playing uh, before Saul, and he asks, uh, at that time, whose son he is. Well, there's it, a different context. There he's asking for some identity, but now, this is sometime later, he's made these promises about David, about the family of the person who kills Goliath, and he's promising him his daughter. So now there's there's more of a personal urgency 
uh, are significance to this. And so um, uh, Saul is asking a more specific question, but because now he needs to include Jesse or take him off the tax rolls, he needs to find out who the extended family is. He needs to get more precision and more details, whereas the earlier question was a more uh, more general question. So this brings in David's background and sets up tra- the transition, and it flows directly into the beginning of the uh, of the next chapter. And the next chapter begins now when he had finished speaking to Saul. So that that immediately takes up from this point, and what we see in the first four verses of the next chapter is this that that the shift of loyalty that begins to take place in Saul's own family and uh, to some degree with Saul but but he's he's got problems as we're going to see. So in the next four verses we see that Saul's family begins to shift their loyalty to David. And in the first verse we read now when he had finished speaking to Saul the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, there's a, a, a couple of things that we ought to point out here. I think this verse, more than any other verse, so there's some episodes that will come up, but this verse specifically tells us a tremendous amount about Jonathan and about his character. If we take a look at the chronology of these events, we recognize that David at this point isn't quite old enough to serve in the army of Israel. So that age for serving in the army was was 20, according to uh, the book of Numbers. And David is less than that. He's probably 18. He might even be 19 years of age. So we're going to err on the side of, of... make him as old as we can. Let's say he's 19 years old. Jonathan is quite a bit older. Jonathan, uh, as we saw in the Battle of Michmash, is already at that time a somewhat experienced uh, warrior, an experienced soldier. And if we make him as young as we could, let's just say by then he's been, he's uh, he's married, he's he's about let's say 25 years of age at the time of the Battle of Michmash. Now, that Battle of Michmash, it's difficult to date precisely in relation to the battle with Goliath, but let's say it's somewhere five to ten years prior to the battle with Goliath. So if it's only five years, then that would mean that that uh, Jonathan was ten years older than, than David by this time, so he would be around 30 some people have placed a difference as much as 20 years difference, that he's, he's between 35 and 40. Now, when you think about that and you, you, you look at here, this 19-year-old young man is, being, is befriended and given the loyalty of a man that's twice his age or almost twice his age, that shows something about the humility of, of Jonathan. Jonathan is the crown prince. He's the recognized heir of the throne of the kingdom, and he has already experienced all of the privileges and all of the trappings that would go with that. And yet he recognizes, uh, and we see that in this passage, he recognizes that David is the one who is going to be the next ruler of Israel, not Jonathan, and he gives him his loyalty. And that's what we see in this verse, that as he uh, has been observing this whole situation with David, uh, then he responds with a love and a loyalty to David. We're told that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And this is the Hebrew word kashar, which means to bind something together or to tie something together. This is the same word that is used in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8, in order to express uh, the fact that you shall bind them, that is, the words of the Torah, as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as, as frontlets for the uh, frontlets uh, between your eyes. This is when you would take the, uh, 
uh, phylacteries, and uh, they tied this around their foreheads and on the back back of their hands. It's 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 binding. Um, it's also a word that is used to show deep uh, affection and love for other people. It's used of the love for Jacob, for Joseph, after Joseph was uh, sold into slavery and his sons told him that actually uh, he had been killed. Uh, Jacob went into uh, profound grief, and Genesis 44.30 says that Jacob was bound with the life of Joseph. So we see that that same word is used there to show this this intimate dependence um, love between two uh, two adults. The word that is translated love here is the general word for love in Hebrew, which is the word ahav, and it mean it can refer to parental love, it can refer to romantic love, it can re- refer to the love of friendship, and it can refer to loyalty. At that point, it begins to approach uh, uh, similarity to the word chesed, which is used many times of God's loyal love. Chesed is only used to describe God's love. It's the word that's translated uh, loving kindness often. And if you have a New American Standard, they usually translate it loving kindness. Some translate it faithful, loyal love. It always has to do with God's loyalty to his covenant. So ahav is used uh, to describe this as well. And the reason I'm pointing this out is that, uh, especially in today's environment, when the liberals just want to come along and every time you see something like this, they want to make it a homosexual relationship. And yet they, it just shows that they, they have an agenda and they're going to impose that agenda uh, upon the Scripture. And that's just absolutely absurd. You have a number of places in Scripture uh, where... The idea of the love of one person uh, for another is mentioned. In fact, in First Kings chapter five, verse one, Hiram, who is the builder of that 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 is, and the ruler of Tyre, uh, has a love for David. It's the same word. It shows that that loyalty to another person, and so that's the idea here: is that Jonathan is loyal. Uh, to David, and he loved him as his own soul. He is going to be loyal. And the reason we can say that, I'm going to skip the second verse and go to the third and fourth verses, is because the immediate context tells us that we're talking about a covenant relationship. So it is incumbent upon anybody who wants to make this mean something else to violate the covenant, the, the, the context here, because we're talking about loyalty to a covenant. Verse 3, we're told, Then Jonathan and David made a covenant. This is sort of like becoming blood brothers uh, in, in an American uh, Indian environment. Uh, they are going to pledge their loyalty to one another. They are of one mind. Uh, remember, uh, Jonathan is the one that, that when he was going into the battle of Michmash in 1 Samuel fourteen six, took his armor bearer with him, and they went outside of the lines of Israel, and they crossed to some extremely rugged uh, territory and terrain and, and uh, uh, climbed up these uh, uh, cliffs in order to uh, attack the Philistine garrison. And Jonathan said at that time to his armor bearer, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. See, that's the same kind of language David used when he approached the Philistine. Jonathan shows his spiritual perception here. He understands that this is a spiritual battle and a theological battle, that the Philistines are uncircumcised. They don't have a right to the land because circumcision is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant where God promised to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the very land on which they stood. So Jonathan has a theological perception. He has the uh, moral and battle courage as a result of that. And he says, it may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by a few. So he shows great spiritual uh, perspicacity. He shows great uh, spiritual uh, application. 
and he is trusting in the Lord just as David does. So you can, you can see why when, when, when David comes to the tent of Saul and begins to tell him what he can do and how the battle is the Lord's and everything else, that as Jonathan listens to David, he's saying, he sounds like me. He sounds just like me. We, we have the same mind. And so, uh, they enter into a long relationship, and it shows great. It just says so much about Jonathan. Jonathan is often seen as sort of a background figure, but he has a great, uh, a great character and great humility. And uh, there's a real tragedy that he is killed along with Saul uh, on Mount Gilboa. So uh, what he does as a result of entering into this covenant then is he takes off his robe. Now, he's the crown prince. So he his uniform probably had certain uh, markings and indications that he was Saul's son. Uh, this is traditional throughout all cultures that, that the son of the king is going to wear uh, special clothes and special garments. And so he takes off his robe and he gave it to David. This has great significance. It shows that he recognizes that David is the one who has the right to wear these special clothes because he's the one who will become uh, the heir of Saul. Uh, and he also gives him his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. He just takes it all and gives it to David. And this is a sign that he recognizes that David is the uh, one who has the right to be the next king of Israel. And this would not have been something that was unknown. The people would have heard about this, and the people would have have seen uh, that he had given this. So the word would have gone out, and the word would have... uh, and the people would have recognized that Jonathan uh, understands that David is the one who will be the next, the next king. Now, I skip verse 2, so we'll go back to it briefly. After the battle immediately, and this is probably also another reason why, um, why Saul wanted to find out who David's family was, is because he's going to tell, tell his father, number one, because of the bravery of your son, you're off the tax rolls. And before you start celebrating, I'm going to take your son, and he's going to come and permanently live and be garrisoned with me and become one of my uh, chief military uh, commanders. And so we're told in verse 2 that he doesn't let David go back uh, to his father's house, uh, house anymore. Then what happens after that in the next uh, five verses is that uh, David's popularity not only is increased with, with Saul's own family, but it increases with the people. And this begins to really anger and upset uh, Saul. Verse 5, we read, So David went out wherever Saul sent him. Now, this terminology is military terminology. It's telling us that David is send, I mean, Saul is sending David on various military missions, and David goes on those missions and he carries them out well. It says he behaved wisely. And the word there that is used for behaving wisely is a significant word. It is the word sakal in the Hebrew, which means to be wise or prudent or a man of understanding. Now that has particular theological significance because he's going out into a various uh, battle scenarios, but he's functioning as the commander of the king of Israel. And yet this demonstrates that he is spiritually wise, that he's not just militarily capable, but he is spiritually wise, and that informs his military capabilities. This is a term that is significantly used in Deuteronomy and in Joshua in relationship to taking and conquering the land. In Deuteronomy 29.9, as Moses is beginning to wrap up what he is telling the, uh, the Israelites, he says, therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. Now, in the rest of that chapter, he's going to warn them about what happens when they don't obey. But he tells them that if you keep the words, if you obey the words, 
then God will prosper you. And in the context, that means you're going to defeat the enemy, you're going to conquer the land, and you're going to take the land, and that there will be uh, great success in building a new, a, a new nation. It's also used a couple of chapters later at the opening of Joshua. These are a couple of great verses to memorize, especially if you understand the context. Joshua is told by Moses, only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, oh, the God is speaking to him rather, only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. So God is telling him that you're going to have victory over the enemies of Israel, over the enemies of God in Canaan, if you will just obey the law and not turn from the left or the right. You'll prosper. And then in verse 8, he says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And that word prosper, prosperous, it's used here is the same word, sakal, that is used in those other places. So it shows us, uh, it, it indicates David's uh, character here in First um, Samuel 18.5 that he behaved wisely. And God is taking care of him and, and uh, providing for him. Uh, the verse uh, also, when we get into the New Testament, the concept of prosperity is a little bit different. And we read it used in a couple of different passages. In 1 Corinthians sixteen two. on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. And this is the word Evoduo in Greek, it also means to prosper. Here it clearly has the idea of a material or economic prosperity. But in 3 John 2, it means, it says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Now, what that shows is in the second part, in the second part of that comparison, is that the soul can prosper. But not in. But that doesn't mean there's necessarily physical health, and fi- financial and health prosperity. It's interesting that um, over the last forty or fifty years in the charismatic community, they developed this whole uh, theology called prosperity theology or health and wealth theology, name it, claim it theology, however you want to term it. And uh, that led to some pretty big scandals in the in the um, 1980s. And one of those that came down in that scandal was uh, uh, Jim Baker and their Praise the Lord uh, television, televangelism ministry. And I'm sure many of you remember uh, some of those things that went on. But he ended up going to jail because of the financial uh, misdealings of the the, the heritage community that they had developed, uh, and they had misused the funds that all these Christians had sent in. I can name you about 10 seminaries that are doing the same thing right now, but that's another story. Uh, anyhow, uh, they, when he was finally let out of prison, you know, these guys have sort of a pulpit persona, and every time they were on TV, they, they were in this, this character, but when he got let out of prison, there was an interview that I saw on television with him, and it was one of the few times I've ever seen a great example of genuine repentance. You may remember that at the same time Jimmy Swagger came out after his sins were discovered, and he's weeping and all this emotion. But Jim Baker came out, and he said, in a very normal, everyday persona, He said, while I was in prison, I got a chance to study Greek. I didn't have a whole lot else to do, and I studied Greek, and I came to understand that this verse, which is like the proof text for health and wealth theology, that that verse and that word didn't mean what we said it meant, and we were wrong, and that there is no biblical foundation for health and wealth theology. And that was it. I mean, that was such a great example of genuine humility and genuine repentance that... um, that I really had to respect the man 
for being able to do that. But that's, that's the idea. So we have to distinguish that in the church age, prosperity is different for the believer than in Israel because of the promises that God had made. So let me give you about three points just summarizing this. First of all, success is measured differently, and prosperity is measured differently in the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're not the same. In the New Testament, prosperity primarily focuses on spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. It doesn't imply necessarily physical, economic, or material prosperity. Second point, in the Old Testament, demonstrations of God's blessing in the Torah were tangible and concrete. The people are told, if you obey me, there will be rains in season and out of season. The crops will be productive. The economy will be good. When enemies attack, one will put to flight a thousand. All of these things were very physical. If you obey uh, God, the wild animals, the predatory animals will all go away. Uh, If you obey God and obey the law, then uh, women will be fertile. The wombs will not be barren. But if you disobey me, then the rains will not come. The sky will be like bronze and the earth will be uh, be like iron. Uh, their crops will not be productive. The wombs will be barren. Uh, the enemies will come and you will be de- destroyed by various military powers. So physical and material blessing was a barometer for Israel to determine whether they were obedient or not. And one of the ties that was taken um, every year was to be used for an annual party, an annual celebration of the grace and the goodness of God. So if they were doing really, really well, and they had a, a GDP of let's say $5 trillion, and they took 10% of that, and they had a party, it would be a heck of a party. You would have the best food, the best champagne, the best beer, the best scotch, the best everything. But if you were disobeying God, and your GDP was only about um, $100 million, and you only had $10 million to spend on a party, well, you'd be getting... Uh, you know, some kind of canned beer that was mass-produced, and you'd be getting some sort of counterfeit uh, bubbly to use instead of the best champagne, and you'd be you'd be getting chicken instead of steak, and and it was a real physical, visible uh, barometer for whether you were obeying God or not. You know, one year you you come along, you go to this this party, and it's not so good. You're just uh, uh, eating hot dogs and chicken burgers, and you might turn and say, you know, I remember when I was a kid, we used to really have these great, great national celebrations, and the food was tremendous. What's happened? Well, what's happened is you've become spiritually idolatrous and uh, disobedient. So my point is that prosperity, physical, material, financial prosperity in the um, in the Old Testament was linked to spiritual maturity. But that's not true in the New Testament. And that's the third point. In the New Testament, prosperity is marked by a spiritual strength in maturity that is not a barometer uh, or that is not connected in any way with physical or financial prosperity so that your, your financial situation is not necessarily a barometer of your spiritual situation. Uh, that doesn't mean that if you're a believer that, and you're applying the wisdom principles of Scripture that you won't be um, materially and physically prosperous. Uh, that works out that way for many people because they make wise decisions, but it's not a necessary connection, which is what we have. So what we conclude from that is that in the New Testament, uh, physical, material, economic prosperity is not guaranteed or related at all to spiritual prosperity, though in some cases it might be. If a person is living wisely on the basis of God's word, then he will often avoid the foolish decisions with money which plague those who live for purely selfish ends. 
but it's not a necessary barometer. So just because you see somebody who's impoverished or have ha- going through difficult times doesn't mean that, that they've been a failure spiritually. God may be taking them through those tests because that's exactly what they need in, in order to grow. Now we get into the uh, next verse, verse uh, 6. Oh, wait a minute, let's, let's just wrap up, say a couple more things about verse 5. Now the rest of the verse reads, And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So initially, David's success is tied to his military skills. And then this verse says that as he was successful, then he began to be accepted by the people and also uh, by Saul's uh, close advisors, his cabinet, his uh, upper echelon of leaders and associates began to accept David. And it was because he's oriented to God's grace and he's oriented to God's word. That is what enables him to to um, trust in the Lord. And because he has strong faith, God is blessing him and everyone is beginning to accept him. But the trouble begins because of Saul's sin nature. In verse 6 we read, Now it had happened as they were coming home, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine. So this is a few days later as the army is now returning um, back to uh, Gibeah, where Saul had established his, uh, his headquarters, that as they go through the various villages, they, they throw ticker tape parades. Uh, for the army, and the uh, they have these celebrations, and the the women are coming out, and they've composed little ditties to sing to praise uh, David and to praise Saul, and they come out uh, with their musical instruments. Uh, it's not really tambourines like we know; it's something similar. The word for tambourine is is like a, a it's a, a, a timbrel, which is like a tambourine but without the jingles. Okay, you have these metal rings on a tambourine that jingle. They didn't have those. It was just sort of a, a round hoop that had animal skin over it, and they would beat that, but it didn't have the, have the jingles. And then a lyre, there were different kinds of lyres. It was usually a three-stringed instrument that was shaped. Uh, there are different shapes that you see up on the uh, slide on the, on the screen, and they would come out, and they would... Uh, they would sing and they would dance, and this reminds us of other uh, situations in the in the uh, history of Israel. After the crossing of the Dead Sea, Miriam composed a, a hymn, and the women came out and they danced and they sang, and this is their celebration of, of victory. That also happened uh, in Judges chapter eleven with Jephthah's daughters daughter as she came out and the women of Israel came out and celebrated Jephthah's victory over the Ammonites. So the women come out, they're singing and dancing to meet King Saul uh, with their musical instruments. And what they're singing is a very simple little phrase, but it really angers Saul. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And so the comparison is clear. Saul may be a great warrior, but David is ten times greater. And so this gets right to him. Because remember, he's operating on his sin nature. He is totally self-absorbed, completely concerned about his own prestige. And he's also probably embarrassed that that this young uh, shepherd has come out of nowhere to defeat this giant, and Saul and everybody else in the army cowered in their tents and did not come out to try to uh, defeat, uh, defeat Goliath. And so we're told about his response. Now, this happens a lot. What happens is that people hear something, see something, are exposed to something, and they react in anger because of the threat that is present by the circumstance or situation. And this is described with Saul in verse 8. It says, Then Saul was very angry. Literally in the Hebrew it says, He burned greatly. 
See, the Hebrew is a very concrete language so that, that literally the, the, the idiom is his nose burned. But it doesn't use the full idiom here. It just uses the verb he burned. But, but when people get mad, really angry, they get red in the face, their nose gets red, and so that's what the idiom was, that their nose burned. But he's saying he's, he's very or greatly angry. And the saying, that is that this little song that they're singing, displeased him. But literally in the Hebrew it says, it was evil in his eyes. He is really angry. And he is going to throw a, a, a tantrum. And he says, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed only thousands. Now, what more can he have but the kingdom? And it becomes clear to him at this point that the only thing left is that David's going to take the kingdom from him, and he's beginning to realize that David is his competitor. So so what we see here is that, is that Saul... Uh, recognizes that that what he desires the most now remember at the very beginning he didn't want prestige he didn't want power he didn't want the kingdom and now it's going to be taken from him and he sees David as the one who's going to do it and so he focuses his anger on David and so from this point on it says so Saul eyed and the idea here is he eyes with suspicion it's a negative concept He's looking at David. He's watching him. He's eyeing him suspiciously from that day forward because he expects that David is going to do what he would do. And that is something underhanded, something manipulative in order to take the kingdom uh, from Saul. Now, things are going to go from bad to worse because now that he's mired in all of this emotional sin, these mental attitude sins of anger and resentment and fear and vindictiveness, Kind of sounds like one of our presidential candidates, doesn't it? Verse 10, and it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit, that's that word we saw before, it's an evil spirit, this this, uh, God's permissive will allowing a demon to uh, oppress Saul, that a distressing spirit from God came upon Saul. This goes back. We've already studied this. I don't need to go into this in detail. It's not demon possession. He doesn't go into Saul. It is from an outside position. It's demon influence, demon oppression. He comes upon Saul, and he prophesied inside the house. Now, isn't that interesting? What's the connection there with prophecy? Now, I've taught this before, that, that prophecy we think of as articulating the word of God. But it is also used in relation to singing. It's it's used of of the um, uh, various temple uh, uh, musicians who it's played their instruments and prophesied to God. Miriam was said to be a prophetess, and the only thing that we know that she did was she composed a hymn. We also see that with Deborah. Deborah was called a prophetess, but she composed a hymn. So there's a a meaning within this word prophet that focuses on singing praise uh, to God. So he's prophesying inside the house, and and I can't go any further than that. I mean, it's just very obscure. Nobody has any idea what that actually uh, fully means. So David played music with his hand, as at other times, but what we see here is that where Saul is, his spear is near at hand, and he decides that he, this is a great opportunity for him to kill David. And so he grabs the spear, and he's thinking, I'll pin David to the wall. And then we're told twice David escaped. So this happened more than once. So this is the first two times. We're going to catalog these as we go through Samuel. This is the first two times that Saul tried to kill David. Now, David doesn't retaliate. He doesn't retaliate for two reasons. Number one, because Saul is the Lord's anointed. But number two, and this is very important, because Saul isn't going out and trying to kill anybody else like this, because David knows that God's going to protect him. So he can relax no matter what. Saul's going to do all kinds of stuff, and David doesn't have to do anything to protect himself because God is. So he can relax and trust in the Lord. Now what we see here... By observing Saul and observing others, 
we can summarize the sin cycle uh, in this way. And I want you to just think about this because this is what can happen to each and every one of us when we get apart from the Lord. We're no longer walking according to the Holy Spirit, but we're walking according to the to the sin nature. First of all, as soon as we stop walking by the Spirit, we make that volitional decision to stop depending on the Holy Spirit, uh, Galatians 5.16, control of the sin nature takes, takes over. And as 5.17 and 18, there's a war between the Spirit and the sin nature, but the sin nature is in control. And when the sin nature controls, it leads to more personal sin or human good, or both, depending on your makeup. And so control of the sin nature leads to uh, sin nature control, and the result of that is spiritual dullness. At that point, we start to lose. Now, if we confess sin and we recover quickly, then the effects of that are limited. But the longer we stay walking by the Spirit, the more dramatic those results are going to be as we start uh, living in the house of, of the sin nature second thing that takes place is if this continues, then our our trust in God begins to shut down. It begins to deteriorate. We no longer think about that as an option. We look to solutions in terms of our own abilities to manipulate or to challenge things. So our faith towards God begins to shut down, and we begin to forget the doctrine that we've learned and our sin nature has an affinity to human viewpoint solutions and pagan solutions, thinking that the flesh can solve the problems, and it changes the way we think. We start focusing on the wrong issues, and we focus on the wrong uh, priorities. And so the, our decision-making process begins to become uh, seriously impaired. The result is is rather than taking in the Word of God, we're taking in human viewpoint paganism. We're inhaling worldliness. And the worldly concepts that give provide rationalizations for our sin nature begin to dominate. Third stage that happens is that arrogance increases. Arrogant skills increase. We've talked about these many times. The basic orientation of the sin nature is self-absorption. So as soon as we start walking by the flesh, everything's about me. That's what we see in Saul. Everything is about him. Everything about is about what he thinks is necessary to have meaning and happiness, to be able to have a legacy. All of these things are bound up in his ego and his uh, sense of what will make him uh, fulfilled as an individual. And as a result of that self-absorption, he wants to indulge himself. He's going to give in to that sin nature, and it's going to dominate. And that leads to self-justification, and we rationalize our disobedience because there's everybody else is doing it. Or whatever the rationalization is, there's a justification for, for every kind of spiritual rebellion. And that leads to self-deception. We can no longer think objectively. We think subjectively. We have a whole country like this. It's amazing to listen to what the man in the streets talks about and says in relation to the problems facing us. They have no clue what's going on. They're so divorced from reality. And that includes most Christians and many Christian pastors. I'm just amazed at what's going on in this country. We have lost our anchor to the Word of God. And this results, the Scripture says, in self-deification. We're worshiping ourselves, And we become the ultimate standard of right or wrong. And that's what we see with Saul. The result of increased arrogance is foolishness. Foolishness is always contrasted with wisdom in Scripture. Romans 1 uh, 18 and following culminates in the fact that professing to be wise, they became fools, those who've rejected the existence of God. They may have triple PhDs in scientific studies that we, you and I can't pronounce, but the Bible says that because they have rejected God, they are fools. And so the result is foolish thinking dominates, there's a loss of reality orientation due to truth suppression. 
They're living on the basis of a lie. One of the great myths that's going around the world today is the myth of global warming. And I was reading an article. I posted a link to it on my Facebook page this morning. Um, I think the original link came off of the Drudge Report, but it linked to a, a news article that was describing a, a meeting of, uh, of a pro-global warming activists. And now what they want to do is to change the definition of a hurricane because after Hurricane Matthew, it wasn't as devastating as the global warming people wanted it to be. They want uh, all these uh, horrible uh, meteorological disasters to take place to justify their mythology, to justify their their false understanding of, of the weather. And so if they if they can reduce the definition and say, well, a hurricane starts at 50-mile-an-hour winds instead of 74, then now we're going to have more hurricanes, and then we'll have more disasters. And see, we were right after all. So they're living in their own fantasy bubble, and they want the rest of us to join them. That's insanity. That's psychotic. And yet we have a scientific community and a a political community in the White House and in, in Congress that buys into this kind of garbage. And it's just like buying into evolution. It's just a fantasy. If you're a Christian, you can't give any credence to any of this, but it's a result of truth suppression. They are totally divorced from reality. And as a result of that, they get more and more upset, more and more angry, mental attitude sins increase. This is what we see in Saul. He's angry. And then the text says he's going to be afraid of David using the everyday word for fear. And then it's going to intensify and he's going to dread David. And so you see how his soul is beginning to to be destroyed by uh, sin nature control. And then this leads to various forms of idolatry, not just idolatry where you're worshiping wood or stone or metal, but you're submitting to all kinds of false authorities. You're submitting to emotion and peer pressure. Um, You're submitting to material possessions. I have to have things, and I have to have the things that money can buy in order to, because that defines happiness and success or, or pleasure. And so you have just the rise of just an incredible uh, sexual orgies and sexual uh, fantasies being played out today that are being exacerbated by the Internet and pornography and many other things. And this just, just intensifies the breakdown of marriage, the breakdown of family, the breakdown of personal relationships. And then you get into various forms of escapism. Life is miserable, so I'm going to escape. Uh, and you're going to do it through drugs. You're going to do it through alcohol. You can do it through entertainment. You can do it through pleasure. You can do it through eating. You can do it through all kinds of things. And so you, you, you're worshiping these things as that which defines life. And then, of course, there are all the false ideologies and religions that come along that people, people worship. The result of this is increased mental attitude, sins, and fragmentation in the soul, anger frustration, depression, and fear, which leads to further self-induced misery and more attempts to mask the misery and to deny it. And that's all part of demon, uh, demon influence and demonic destruction, and it characterizes our country. Now, let me give you a couple of uh, uh, another observations here because we're going to talk about fear and Saul and fear. Fear is the basic orientation, the basic emotional orientation of the sin nature. It's basically focused on self-absorption. But when self is threatened in any way, shape, or form, the immediate response is fear. This is what we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 10. After Adam and Eve had sinned and God came to walk in the garden with them, they said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. There's a lack of security. There's an exposure there before God. And so the basic emotional sin is fear. Fear comes when we realize that we have no security. Fear comes when we realize that our hopes and our dreams are in jeopardy. And maybe our physical health, 
Maybe our physical security and our safety are being threatened, and so the response is fear. And, and when we are afraid, we try to deal with the fear by solving the problem on our own without depending upon God. And this leads to further problems. One of those further problems is anger, and I think an- anger sort of represents a complex of sins. Um, we get angry when we don't get our way. See, we start off being afraid because there's no security. There's no, there, there's no safety net. We're afraid that we're going to lose everything. And, and the fact that we might lose everything means we're not going to get what we think we have to have in order to be happy, in order to be safe, in order to be secure. So what happens is fear produces anger. And anger comes basically when we don't get our way, when we, things don't go the way we think they should, when we perceive that something is blocking us or preventing us from achieving what we think will make us happy. Now, we can think about this in a lot of different ways. A lot of people get angry about the political situation because they, 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 they think that for, for, the, for the country to be the way they want it to be so that they can be secure, so that they can be happy, so that they can have a, the kind of life that they want to have, that the political structure has to go a certain way. When that political structure wants to go in a different direction, then what happens? You get angry. You get mad at all those people out there that are voting the wrong way and all those politicians that are going in the wrong direction. You get angry because you're not getting your way, just like a little kid who wants his way and his parents say, no, you can't have it, and he gets angry. So angry is just not getting our way. But when anger goes on for a while, and eventually we realize we're never going to get our way, that it's never going to change, then we go into depression. Then we are... We say we'll never have stability, we'll never have happiness, we'll never have security. Why should I even live? And you get into depression. And so depression is is a a long-term anger that recognizes that there's no ultimate solution to any of my problems. And so this is what we see being depicted in Saul uh, as opposed to David. David's happiness is not based on people on circumstances or on events. That's the way the believer should be. It doesn't matter if the Constitution gets shredded next year and we get a communist dictator. My happiness is dependent upon my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and not who is in the White House or in the Capitol or sitting on the Supreme Court. But there are a lot of Christians who, unfortunately, uh, I believe, uh, if things don't go right at the next election, who are just going to be absolutely miserable because of what happens. And that's going to expose the fact that you're not focused on God as the source of your happiness and your stability. There have been Christians who have lived their entire lives under some of the most oppressive regimes in history and had great happiness and great joy and great stability and great ministries to people. That doesn't mean that things were good for them, but the Lord was in control, and so they were relaxed. And so we need to recognize that our happiness is based upon the Lord and not based on circumstance. In John fifteen eleven, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may, be, may remain in you. And Jesus says, Only one of you is going to live past martyrdom. You know, and not not die from martyrdom. He knows what's going to happen to every one of them. And he's saying, but you can have joy in the midst of all the torture and persecution and oppression, just as Jesus had joy when he goes to the cross, goes through all the physical torment and everything else associated with it. And he's bequeathing his joy to us. James 1, 2 says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith, and the idea there is that the testing of your ability to apply the Word of God produces endurance, and endurance will have its maturing effect. And that is the difference between a Saul and a David. And we'll come back uh, next time, and we will look at what is going on. Well, let me just go to the next couple of verses. Because what we see here is really the focal point of this lesson. Saul was afraid of David. He's responding in mental attitude sins. 
Why? Because the Lord was with him. See, we're going to have a whole culture as mad at, at, at Christians because they recognize the Lord's with us and they're jealous and they're mad and they don't want to be convicted. And so they are going to be attacking Christians. And if you don't get some doctrine in your soul and start applying it now when it's easy to apply it, then it's just going to be worse. Verse 12, then therefore Saul removed him from his presence. That's the best way to get rid of somebody who's convicting you of truth by their life is you send him somewhere else. So Saul sent him somewhere else, made him a, a, a captain over a thousand, and he went out and he came in uh, before the people had hit increased. And then the next verse says, and David behaved wisely. There's that word Sakal again. And the Lord was with him. See, the Lord was with David, and the Lord is with us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded that that what matters is our focus upon you and our trust in you, and that no matter what the circumstances may be, uh, we need to recognize that happiness and joy, peace, stability, tranquility are ours not because of what we have or don't have, not because of our friends, not because of our position, but because of who you are in our relationship with you. Father, we need to be like David, spiritual champions, and not like Saul, who's a sinful failure. And challenge us, help us have the insight and the courage and the strength to apply the word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.